We can boldly say that there's none like Christ. And there's none who lived like Christ. Because we know, of course, in him there was no sin. But we also can say that there is none who died like Christ. He was the one who died as the sinner's substitute. And he was to do so willingly, being taken by the hands of cruel and wicked men. His death was decreed from the foundation of the world. And it was an obedience to the will of the Father that he should set his face to, to go to Jerusalem and there to ascend Golgotha's brow that he might lay down his life. Men and women, one can see the controlling power of Christ even to the very end in the uniqueness of his death. For having cried finished, we read these words in John 19 and the verse 30, that he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I want you to stop just for a moment and think of that. Ordinarily, it would be the other way round. There's the departing of the spirit, and then the head falls into the chest. But with the Savior, it's exactly the opposite. First, he bowed his head. The implication being that up to this point, his head had been held erect. And so the artists who depict Christ with his head tucked into his chest are not scripturally correct. His head, head is held erect right up to the very end because this was no impotent sufferer who hung there on that old Roman gibbet. Had that been his key, the case, then his head would have fell helplessly onto his chest and he would have no occasion to bow it. But it says he bowed his head. He consciously, calmly, reverently bowed his head. What glorious composure did he display? His actions manifest his deity. He bowed his head and then he willingly gave up the ghost. No man had the power to take his life and no man could take that life from him. He had the power to lay it down. And thank God he had the power to take it up again. And from the cross, the Lord of glory was to be taken by the caring and by the loving hands of two of the disciples. And they were to lay him in that virgin tomb. Where was the tomb? Well, you cast your gaze to the closing words of the previous chapter. Chapter 19, now in the place, verse 41, where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, the new sepulcher wherein was never man yet led. A garden. A garden was the first place that Adam sowed the seed which issued into death. And now here is a garden where was sown the seed which would bring forth fruit, much fruit, and many sons unto your mortal life. And there he lay for those days until he would come forth as a mighty victor for just as Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried, so he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. But I tell you in the authority of God's word, here is a joyful sight 
to behold. I want us to see this joyful sight as we have it in these opening verses. One, you notice first of all here the great discovery. When we speak of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're contemplating that which was promised for and foretold from the Old Testament scriptures. It was seen, for example, in type by the delivering of Isaac from the dead and received as one from death. Three days after Abram had lifted up his eyes and he had saw the place afar off. Mount Moriah was actually the same mountain range as Calvary. And there the, the Abraham was to put a son to death, at least in type. The Lord knew his heart. And yet he was prevented from thrusting the knife in when the Lord showed him, revealed to him a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And that ram was offered in the place of Isaac, his only son. What a picture of Calvary. It is seen in type by Jonah the prophet because there he was delivered by God from the belly of the wheel and coming forth after three days and, and three nights. And so it was. At the third day, the greatest discovery was made. You'll notice, please, from verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. It was upon the Sabbath day. It was upon the first day of the week. Does that not express the perfect wisdom of our God in that Christ, the head of the new creation, was raised from the dead upon the first day of the week? He had fulfilled the law of God. The shadows had given way to the substance and the second Adam had regained all that their first Adam had lost and more besides. And it was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week that the psalmist has in mind when he pens those words that we find in Psalm 118 and verse 22, for it says, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. This stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We have cause to rejoice, minimum, and not only this Sabbath, but every Sabbath, because it was the day that God ordained that the greatest discovery would be made, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. For up from the grave he arose. And so while in the Old Testament times the Sabbath was a memorial to the finished work of God in creation, in that he created all things in the space of six days. And we read that he rested on the seventh. He sanctified it. He set it apart. So in the New Testament, the Christian Sabbath, being the first day of the week, is the memorial of Christ's finished work in salvation. For from which issues the new creation of souls born again of God's Spirit. Let me ask, let me put it to you. Is that not due reason enough why the believer ought to keep the Sabbath day as a day of rest and as a day of worship? 
It is an eternal memorial that Christ has finished the work on the cross of our redemption and that the first day of the week he rose again, triumphant o'er the grave. Had he never arose, then our hopes would be buried with him in the tomb. But praise his name, he arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. That's the best reason to keep the Sabbath day holy. Because it's a memorial of what Christ has finished by his work on the cross. I want you to see, however, this discovery was made by a saved and devoted sinner in the person of Mary Magdalene. There's no mention made of the other women in John's account as there is in some of the other gospel narratives. That's characteristic of John. Because throughout John's gospel, you'll come across those instances where the Lord met with individuals. He met with Nicodemus by night. He met with that woman, that well-known woman of Samaria by the well. And so it is here. Here was a woman who loved the Savior much because of all that he had done for her. After all, we do look back at eight, uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 2 and reminds us about this woman. Because we're told there a certain woman which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And there are a lot of Marys around the cross. But John <clears throat> details it was this particular Mary, Mary Magdalene, out of whom was delivered seven devils. And for those whom much has been done, then they will love much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Let me ask, is your measure of love, is your measure of devotion to Christ on power with what he has done for you? Here was a woman who was last to leave the scene of the tomb and now she is first to return upon the first day of the week. The measure of her love is noted in that she made her way to the tomb early while it was still dark. Love drew Mary to that place where her Savior's body had been laid. Does her love and devotion not challenge us? I does it not put us to shame? For there are those whom God has saved. And yet it is a struggle to be at God's house on the first day of the week. It seems that a battle takes place every Sabbath morning to conquer the bedclothes and to get up and to prepare our hearts for a meeting with the living Christ. Does not put us to shame when we have to say at times it's a struggle to pray. It's a struggle to have that little quiet time. Or maybe it's a struggle to say a little word in season to that soul that you work beside or come across your path. Mary's love and her devotion challenges us. Where weak views of her sinfulness and her utter unworthiness are entertained then, you know, there'll be little expression of our gratitude and love. It is those who have the clearest sight of their deservings of hell 
whose hearts are most moved at the amazing grace which snatched us as brands from the burning. It's those that will be most devoted to Christ. Mary's devotion was rewarded. For when she came early in approaching the sepulchre, she could see that the stone was already laid aside. It had been already moved. Her conclusion was that they had taken away the Lord and so she turns on her heels and she brings the news to Peter and John and, as it, and it was at once that the disciples set out for that tomb and we are told that they ran. And how perfect are the ways of God. Because you see, men and women, the word demanded in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word will be established. And now we have Mary and we have two disciples. And they get early, very early to the tomb. And they see the stone is rolled away. Here are two of the Lord's disciples who would discover that stone. And also that the tomb was vacated of the body of their Lord. This discovery was aided by their sight. And don't forget something. That which we were looking at on Thursday night past. One of these disciples is the one who denied the Lord. And yet I can't help but think that John befriended Peter. They were close disciples. They always seemed to be together. And maybe he came and he was the means of helping Peter after his denial because the two of them are there. And there's a race. And John is a little bit more agile and he gets to the tomb first. And Peter follows. But I'm saying to you that the discovery, this greatest discovery, is made by what they saw. And there's a little word study that I want to show you here. You look at the words of verse 5, verse 6, for example. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth, underline it, the linen clothes lie. Back up to verse 5. And he stooping down, that is, the disciple who, who, who loved the other disciple, that's John. That's how he describes himself in his own gospel. It's that other disciple. It's the disciple whom, John loved, whom Jesus loved. And verse 5 says, And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying. But he yet went in, he went not in. And the two words are different words. The word used in connection with John Verse 5 signifies to take a glance. The one used in verse 6 of Peter means that he beheld intently. He scrutinized. You know the way you would take a glance across the road and maybe someone walking by and you pay no heed, not much attention. That's different to when you look and you open a book and you scrutinize it or you, a document. You see, Peter was different. He had went inside the tomb. He had an intent look brought to that place and it discovered that the Savior had been resurrected from the dead. And so the two words are different. And then go to verse 8. Then went also that other disciple, that's John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. That's a different word again. John had already saw the grave clothes, but now John believed. 
that Christ had risen from the dead. The word saw in verse 8 gives the thought of perceiving with the understanding. Verse 5, he looked into the sepulcher from the outside. He saw by a glance. The linen clothes lie. But now on the inside, he's inside. And he saw also the napkin lying that was about his head. Not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in his place by itself. What a blessed discovery this was. May we each by the eye of faith see the risen Lord even this morning. The greatest discovery. But you know we've got to say something about the grave clothes. Because the Lord does. What the two disciples were taken up with was the grave clothes that were lying there in that tomb. And you'll notice how the Holy Ghost gives detail concerning these. Verse 7 is all about the grave clothes. It's obvious that these were an integral and important part of the evidence that the Lord indeed was risen from the dead. And men and women, we underline this truth because the modernist tries to do away with it. And they put a question mark over it. And there's apostates and pulpits who have said it's just a vision, it's, it was just a spirit and, and all of this. But the Holy Ghost has given us the evidence. We've already seen two or three witnesses. Now look at the evidence. You'll note that where they were to be found, what they saw was the evidence that what had happened had been done decently and in order. There were, no, there were no signs of haste or of a struggle, but these words teach us in verse 7 that the grave clothes were left wrapped together in the very place where they had laid the body of the Lord. The sense is that the bands around his head were still molded in that original shape. As were the rest of the grave clothes that had been tightly wound around the body of the Lord's corpse. You see, we read about the ointment. The ointment back there in John chapter 19, verse 40, was a custom of those days. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices and the manner, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So it was those special ointments that were given for the purpose of a corpse. And that ointment that is spoken about there would have caused, as it was on the linen clothes, it would have caused those grave clothes to stay in that very shape. As if the body was still within them. They were lapped tightly together around about the corpse. You've only got to think, come back with me a few chapters to John 11, because there you find Lazarus. And I don't really need to go back over the background of that passage but John chapter 11 details how at the command of the Lord, Lazarus was to come forth from the tomb. And so the Lord standing in that place, in that graveyard, as we would say today, he says in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. You see the next verse. And he that was dead came forth, bound 
hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. He couldn't have loosed himself. He's bound by the linen clothes. Men and women, he had to be set free from them. But when Christ came forth from the tomb, he left the grave clothes behind they were, where they were. He did so because death had no more dominion over him. He would never need them again. Lazarus came forth with them because one day he would die. He would need them again, as it were. But even in this, Christ must have the preeminence. He died unto sin once. He liveth again unto God. He left the grave clothes behind because he was going to be clothed with the robes of glory. There were no need for these earthly rags in that heavenly land. And thus, when John saw not merely the empty tomb, but the manner in which those grave clothes lay undisturbed in their original wrappings without the body of Christ in them, he knew that nothing, nothing but a miracle could have caused that to happen. John saw and believed. He understood it was a logical, it was an irresistible conclusion drawn from the evidence that was before him. The body was gone from the sepulcher. The clothes were left behind. The condition of them indicated that Christ had passed out of them without them being unwrapped. You see, if friends had come to take away the body of Christ, they would have taken the grave clothes with them. They would have still honored that corpse and carried the whole body, the corpse with the clothes. If foes or enemies had have come to remove the body for stripping it, they would not have been so careful to dispose of the clothes and napkin in the orderly manner in which John now was to see them. Our blessed Savior had left the grave clothes just as they had rested upon them. He had simply risen out of them by his divine power. And dear loved one, we are invited to come and see the place where the Lord lay. That was the message that the angels given in Matthew's account to the disciples who arrived. The grave clothes themselves mark his resting place. In the same manner as one would leave an impression on, on the form of their bed in which they had been lying. But you know, we are also given to see a type beautifully fulfilled here. And I refer you back to the Old Testament scriptures, in particular to the time of Joseph. Joseph is, in many ways, a wonderful type of Christ. That is, Joseph of the Old Testament. When hands unjustly were to cast him into a dark dungeon for no fault of his own, he too was numbered with the transgressors. To one of them, he was the means of blessing. To the other, he was the pronouncer of judgment. And men and women, you thrust yourself forward to the cross of Calvary. And so it was with Christ. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. To one thief, he was a blessing. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. To the other, he was a pronouncer of judgment. But you see, Joseph did not remain forever in the dungeon. Any more than Christ was to remain in the tomb. 
Joseph's place of shame and suffering was exchanged one day for dignity and glory. But before he left the dungeon, I want you to consider the words that we read in Genesis 41, verse 14. For it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment. And came in unto Pharaoh. He's coming at the invitation of the king to meet with him. He doesn't go in the same manner in which he was found the rest of the week. He shaves and he changes his raiment. And so it was with Christ. He left behind the clothes of death and of the grave to come forth in clothing of immortality and of glory to ascend back to the Father's right hand having obtained eternal redemption for his people. Dear child of God, there's also in the grave clothes a significance for the future. For as it was with Christ, so it must be with his people. The manner in which Christ arose is a pledge and it's a seal of what it will be like for all of his redeemed when he comes back the second time. For it will be then that all his people shall be rid forever of all the vestiges of the old nature and of death. We shall be changed. I read what Paul writes to the church at Philippi, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for our conversation is in heaven. That, that, that word, as in the scriptures, doesn't just mean as we would use it today as talk. It takes on a greater meaning, behavior, conduct. But in this verse, it even goes further. It really means our citizenship. Uh, and if you have a, a passport, whatever's on the outside of that passport, as a British passport or whatever, that you're a citizen of the UK. And Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. We'll be changed in a moment of time. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. You consider the great words of the chapter of resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just listen to what I, as I read verse 51. And what it says following. Where it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does it mean? Well, if you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 about those who some sleep. Some had died already. The child of God, his death or their death is described as sleep. But he says, will not all sleep, will not all die. There will be God's people that will be on earth when the Lord himself comes back. But he says this, we shall all be changed. Whether we're in the grave, our bodies in the grave, or whether we're still living, we shall all be changed. In a moment... 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He repeats it. And there's no silent coming of the Lord. Do you see that? It's when the trumpet shall sound. You'll not need a news broadcaster to tell you the Lord's come back. Every eye shall see him. In a moment. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? See, these old bodies wouldn't do for heaven. They'll be changed to being immortal. And if you're not saved today, listen, let me tell you this, that old body of yours will not do for hell either. If you reject Christ and go to that lost eternity, you'll have a body for hell. You'll have a body that will be ever dying, but never able to die. We shall all be changed. And this is the glorious chapter of the resurrection. And the cry will be, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Tell me, are you sure that one day that you'll be resurrected unto life eternal with Christ? That is found only in the hope of the gospel. Not in any church or denomination. Only in the hope of the gospel. Because he lives. Then all in Christ shall live also. That's why this joyful sight that we're looking at this morning has a connotation for the future and for every child of God. Let me show you the grand truth here. Because the truth that we've been looking at this Easter Sabbath morning is the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a grand truth which ought to be considered along with the atoning death of the Savior on the cross. But you'll note even from this passage it was a truth that was forgotten by his own disciples. Verse 9, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. For three years, these disciples had heard the Lord speak of his resurrection, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection to follow, yet they hadn't understood him. Again and again he had told them that he would rise again on the third day, yet they had never taken in his meaning. You know that? stands in a stark contrast when we consider his enemies. Because Matthew gives us this little note. Matthew 27, verse 63. 62 says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, verse 63, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. The enemies of the Lord knew They remembered what he had said. How much a rebuke then it was to his friends to hear the angels say in Matthew 28, He's not here, for he is risen as, as, as he said. As he said. The same truth is found in Luke 24, in verse 6 and 7. 
He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And the disciples had forgotten that great truth. But lo, this grand truth was forgotten. The facts are before us in this passage. The Savior must needs die on the cross that sinners might be saved. But he must needs also rise again from the dead, as is claimed in the words of verse 9. God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And while he was delivered for our offenses, he was raised again for our justification. The grand truth of the Savior's resurrection. You see, dear people, it has its foundations in the very written Word of God. That Word that is forever settled in heaven. That Word that is inerrant. It's not some truth that is merely based on feelings or even intellect. External evidences may produce intellectual assurances. But such proofs do not move the heart nor bring that soul into communion with him. The written word of God applied by the Spirit of God alone does that. True saving faith rests not on sight nor in speculation, but it rests upon the written word. And it is that which Peter has been able to speak about, that one of the disciples that we've been looking at this morning, yet in his little epistle, the first epistle, First Peter 1 and verse 8, he says this, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let me ask you as I bring our meeting to a close this morning, have you the joy unspeakable and full of glory? Have you the joy of sins forgiven? Knowing, knowing that your Savior is risen from the dead, knowing that he lives today in the power of an endless life. May even this Easter Sabbath morning find you having that meeting with the risen Lord from which you will never be the same again. And you'll be able to return to your home as these were to do so as we read in this passage, rejoicing in the truth of God's written word, having by faith seen this joyful sight, Christ is indeed risen from the dead. The tomb's empty. And he's not on the cross. He's a glorified, exalted, ever-living Savior. Is he your Savior? They're in is your only hope. Therein is the message of the gospel.